Welcome to the HR Chat Show, one of the world's most downloaded and shared podcasts designed for HR pros, talent execs, tech enthusiasts, and business leaders. For hundreds more episodes and what's new in the world of work, subscribe to the show, follow us on social media, and visit hrgazette.com. Welcome to another episode of the HR Chat Show. Hello, this is your host today, Bill Bannum. And in this episode, we're going to hear from Juan E. Zuniga, managing partner of Ramon Law, about culture within law firms. Listen to as he shares tips to attract more diverse candidates into smaller firms. Plus, he talks about the power of mentorship. Juan is an international transactions attorney who has worked on cross-border deals throughout the US, Latin America, and elsewhere. And by the way, listeners, if you enjoy this episode, I'd encourage you to check out HR Chat episode 540 with Ramon Law's Tom M. White. Juan, it's my pleasure to welcome you to the HR Chat Show. Welcome. Thank you, Bill, and I appreciate you having me and uh, sharing your platform with us. Thank you so much. Beyond my reintroduction just a moment ago, why don't you take a couple of minutes and tell our listeners a bit more about you and what you get up to? Oh, my pleasure. Thank you, Bill, and lawyer in the space of ERISA and employment matters. My role today is as managing partner is to lead the law firm, and amongst other tasks that I have is to be intimately involved in recruiting. And a big focus for me is essentially creating a robust DEI platform, um, something that we didn't have at the firm previously. And so for the last year, we've actually put together a DEI committee that covers both the attorney experience, but also for staff, including everyone from say, paralegals to accountants to IT professionals. I've been a practicing lawyer for about 30 years, a little bit more than that. Um, By way of personal history, uh, I was born in the United States in Southern California, but I was raised in both Southern California and in Mexico. And um, my personal cultural heritage is very much like that. My, My life experience has been straddling the border between the U.S. and Mexico. And uh, of course, I'm, I'm fully bilingual in English and Spanish, and my legal practice uh, essentially is representing clients who are doing investments across the border with a particular focus on, on real estate. And those investments can be a person in the U.S. investing southbound into Mexico or perhaps somewhere else in Latin America, but also vice versa, uh, Mexican and Latin clients who are investing into the U.S. And so in that particular Uh, role that I play as a cross-border lawyer, I have to be a facilitator on a variety of different levels, not just simply legal interpretation, but also um, uh, cultural interpretation, linguistic interpretation, the interpretation and translation of business practices and habits. One of the things that I tell my clients is that if you're going to cross borders, do not expect to um, have the local system change for you or accommodate itself for you. You need to be agile and nimble and be able to accommodate yourself to what is the reality on the ground. Um, And then again, that encompasses a variety of different uh, aspects. From a legal perspective, it could be corporate, it could be employment law, it could be tax law, it could be real estate law, 
it could be finance law, um, because the rules are different. And so one of the things that I actually appreciated many, many years ago, I sat in on a forum with a colleague of mine. Her name is Lizbeth Flores. She practices out of Miami. Um, and she was at an alumni forum for, for um, us at Harvard Law School. And she said something that really resonated with me, Bill, which was when you are bicultural, you have the ability to be able to be, I think, much more agile in the nuanced way of thinking because you've got to be able to understand two different realities and harmonize them at the same time. So when we bring that into the DEI sphere, me as the managing partner, one of the things that I want to be able to do is to bring that sort of bicultural experience that allows me to think laterally in two different ways so that I can appreciate the experience of my attorneys and my staff when it comes to those who are un underrepresented, let's say, in the legal industry. Um, and that can be women, that can be attorneys of color, that can be uh, attorneys from the LGBTQ community. Um, the, the prevailing, um, and we can get into this a little bit more, but the prevailing um, sense is that the legal industry is not particularly diverse and much less so in what we would call the big law universe. Um, and so big law tends to be very, very skewed towards uh, white and male domination at the ownership, partnership, and management ranks. And some of the things that we're trying to do at Ramon is to break down those barriers. Thanks for listening to this episode of the HR Chat Podcast. If you enjoy the audio content we produce, you'll love our articles on the HR Gazette. Learn more at hrgazette.com. And now, back to the show. Okay, thank you very much. Um, so just continuing on from that in terms of bringing that bicultural experience into the firm then, can, can you maybe share how Ramon fosters principles of diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging? Sure. So um, I think we have to step back and look realistically at the economic model that we bring to the table that is different than what is typically the experience at Big Law. Um, and our economic model is very transparent in the sense that there are sort of two very basic uh, concepts for which an attorney gets compensated, and that is the origination, which is the clients that you bring to the firm, the ones that you originate, and the production, meaning how much do you actually work for a client. At other law firms, there are more complicated and opaque compensation formulas um, that tend to reward networking, politicking, uh, internal cliquishness, if you want to call it that, and that tends to skew economics more in favor of, you know, for lack of a better term, you know, the insiders and who are the insiders. At our firm, we don't really have insiders and cliques and uh, administration and bureaucracy. So what, what that allows us to do is when we recruit for lawyers to join our firm, we're really looking at lawyers who can fit into that community and have, have a very um, transparent economic um, value bargain to bring to our 
law firm, right? And so what that means is we'll be looking at um, a, a female attorney or an African-American attorney or a white attorney all on the same basis, all on the same par, which is what value do you add to uh, the firm as opposed to, you know, how well are you going to fit into some administrative or political clique, which is how you um, climb the ladder at other law firms. So if you start with transparent economics, you're really going to create and foster a culture of inclusion, quite frankly, because um, what we're talking about is um, transparent economics lead to more uh, community building and lead to um, more collaboration amongst lawyers in our environment. Uh, and so what that ends up is, is producing a very refreshing change of pace for underrepresented lawyers who are feeling excluded uh, in their big law universe because they do not particularly um, uh, participate in say management or administration or a particular clique and leaves them economically disadvantaged when the formula is paid out. In our firm, those lawyers actually feel um, liberated, if you will, to practice in the manner in which they want and to develop their client base in the manner in which they want. So um, we kind of let lawyers um, have a lot more autonomy and less restriction from having to participate in what I'll call, for lack of a better term, the political game um, that plays out in in big law uh, atmosphere. Okay, thank you very much. So, so what I part of what I took from that then is while diversity is absolutely key, uh, so is cultural fit. It, certainly within your organization, that that culture fit, the the the, the mindset, uh, it, that needs to be on par as part of part of that initial attraction and onboarding process. Would, would you agree with that? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. By by all means. Um, First, we're looking at, you know, uh, quality of lawyering, you know, excellent professionals, um, develop legal skills and experience. But we certainly do require people who are both entrepreneurially minded in the way they practice law and also, like you're saying, Bill, um, culturally, culturally um, friendly to our notion that what we're trying to do is to build community and collaboration across our platform. Um, and so um, when we find that that combination of, you know, um, uh, economic vitality, entrepreneurialness and, and collaboration minded spirit on top of the fact that, you know, as a default, we require excellent lawyers. I mean, top quality lawyers and top quality clients. We end up with a very um, inviting community so that it's welcoming to people from all types of backgrounds, because it's it's again. Um, uh, dependent on the on the transparent nature of how we collaborate, um, and so what we're looking is building trust and bonding across our community, regardless of a person's background. Okay, thank you very much. So on this show, we like to offer lots of tips. Okay, uh, lots of takeaways. So it, it, in terms of that attraction, that that recruiting piece, how? How would you recommend organizations can get better at a, attracting a diverse pool of, of candidates? Yeah, I, I'm assuming part of your answer there is, of course, you've got the right culture, but but benefits, let, let, let's be honest, but the, the benefits and, and, and the, the salaries are terribly important too. It, tell us a bit more about the, the best ways to attract a diverse pool of excellent candidates. 
Well, if I if I were to address your question with respect to my particular background, right, it would be um, addressing the issue from a practicing lawyer uh, who came up the ranks in in large transnational law firms. Um, the 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 culture of those firms um, is based on a very different economic model than ours. And one of the one of the the key tenets of that is you hire a lot of very very young lawyers at very lucrative salaries, and you work them to death. Um, and there's also an implication in that formula that the work that those lawyers produce is essentially the profit base for the firm. But most of those lawyers, like say 95% of those lawyers, will never um, ascend the seniority ladder to becoming equity owners in that law firm. Most of them will eventually drop away or be terminated and move to say, another law firm over time or set up their own practices or go work for government or go work as in-house lawyers for clients and whatnot. So when you've got a, 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 a culture that has built in the notion of attrition at say a rate of 90 to 95% of your incoming class of lawyers, what you are doing is basically telling people, you know, the first day when you start as a junior lawyer at some top level New York law firm is look around the room and the 20 other associates who are who are working with you and starting that same day with you, 19 of them will be gone by the time, you know, 10 years into the practice. And so then the question becomes, well, of those 19 who are gone, who are you letting go and why? And who is surviving and why? And are you creating the conditions to allow underrepresented attorneys to actually ascend that ladder when that ladder becomes very steep and very narrow. In other words, the manner in which the structure is created disincentivizes um, opportunities for people to advance when you're uh, underrepresented and you see already at the top that it's dominated by men and it's dominated by the cultural majority. So for what it's worth, I mean, if you're asking me to give tips about how to create the conditions to foster greater diversity, equity, and inclusion, it's almost like the model itself is broken and doesn't really give you the ability to do anything meaningful in the sense of diversity. Um, just because just because it, it's, it's inherently disincentivized to that. You know, for what it's worth, there is there's an organization called Leopard Solutions, and they track trends in the legal industry. And during the pandemic, there was an amazing amount of attrition of female lawyers away from private legal practice in large law firms. And when they surveyed those female lawyers, what they found out was that they felt particularly undervalued, especially during the pandemic when everyone had to work from home and they no longer had the ability to try and like argue their case or assert their case to remain relevant in a large law firm by being physically present. Um, there was a great quote that said, male lawyers are promoted on potential and female lawyers are promoted on performance. And I say, I'm sorry, um, on, female lawyers are promoted on performance. And I'd say that you could actually extrapolate that to other underrepresented lawyers as well, that we've got to work that much harder to be able to extend the ladder of seniority in firms because the deck is stacked against us. So if you ask me for tips and tricks, I, I, I don't know what the tips and tricks are because I think the, the, the cultural 
inertia of the large law firm institution doesn't even allow itself to scratch the surface of creating true diversity and equity and inclusion when the model is the way it is. It's almost like you have to break the model. And that's one of the things that we've tried to do at Ramon is, well, we're not going to be what's called the leverage pyramid associate driven model. We're going to be focusing on partners. And by focusing on partners, we can take anyone from any kind of background. So I don't have an answer to your question if you're talking about big law, because I think big law bill really is inherently created not to incentivize diversity, equity, and inclusion. And in my experience, and I'm pretty cynical about it, but in my experience, um, my attempts while working at big law to try and create um, a culture of diversity were generally met by lip service at the end of the day. Now, granted, this is 15 years ago when I left big law and started my own practice, but in part, I left because I didn't feel valued. I didn't feel appreciated. Um, and part of it was the structure, the way the economic model is set up. This is this is very interesting. So that you'd say that's that's a typical experience. Oh, overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly. If you if you look at lawyers Sorry, of my generation who would have yeah, okay. graduated law school in the early to late nineties, let's say, and maybe even before that. So these are people who are pretty much going to be at the peak of their legal career, say in their fifties, right? Um, and you will see a whole raft of refugees from big law firms who felt that they were not valued and eventually you know, excluded from the most important work that was necessary to get yourself promoted to the next level. Um, so you know, we're talking about <clears throat> whatever, the 90s and 2000s, maybe even the early 2010s, when I was still involved in, in that universe. But there gets a point where you're looking around yourself and you're saying, you know, how do I make myself, how do I make myself economically relevant in an economic formula that is weighted against me? Right? When 19 of 20 of the incoming class of 1992 are going to be weeded out, how do you make yourself be the one that survives? Um, it's it's not a fair equation. And I'm sorry, I don't have a good answer for you because um, I, I just think that's the way the legal industry is, is conducted. So you, what you end up seeing is a lot of lawyers who actually spin off and find a handful of their partners and create boutique law firms of say three or four or five lawyers um, who were friends and colleagues either in law school or through the associate ranks in big law and um, that's where you're going to find, I think, a lot of your most talented minority and women lawyers in the profession who are in my age bracket, you know, in their 40s and their 50s. We just we found that it was not a level playing field and we had to leave. Well, I guess on the other side, at least it fosters uh, an entrepreneurial spirit wanting to get your own thing going, you know, and showing the big guys that uh, there are better ways of doing it. Um so you've got clients in real estate, uh, in hospitality, and, and various other sectors. I, I wonder if maybe you could point to other industries that are doing DIB better, who are getting it right, from, from the conversations that you have with, with, with your clients. Uh, well, you know, 
My experience there is um, that the clients who get it right um, are being led from the top, okay? And what I mean by that is they're being led by CEOs and C-level executives who see diversity as a very, very valuable element within their organizations. Um, it's really hard to lead from below when it comes to diversity, um, especially if the top doesn't really care. It really needs to start at the top, at the C-level, that this is a set of values that we believe is going to make our business or our company or our, or our enterprise more valuable, more robust, more agile. And I think there's a lot of value to um, thinking in those terms because um, what diversity brings to the table is the ability to articulate a variety of different points of view. If everyone is thinking in the monolithic fashion, um, you're not gonna be able to solve complex problems as efficiently. Um, but when you're bringing diverse voices to the table and diverse experiences, you're going to be challenged more. And sort of that um, pressure testing uh, hopefully results in better products or better services or whatever. In my experience, I've really seen that leading from the top is what gets a, um, a much more inclusive environment within an organization. And that's what I'm trying to do at Ramon, right? I'm trying to lead from the top. Not that we, not that we didn't have previously a set of values uh, related to diversity, equity, and inclusion. What I've just tried to do is sort of um, programmatize it, institutionalize it, create and opportunities for discussion around it. Um, but I think that's also important. We need to have that on the table. Um, so yeah, I think I think top-down leadership is really what gets you the most results, Bill. Okay, so top-down leadership, get that. But in terms of change, uh, change can come from the bottom as well, right? If you're if you're hiring that diverse workforce, uh, including uh, younger folks, folks folks from different backgrounds, they're they're inherently going to come with their own ideas, their own value systems, and that that's that's going to create change within within the organization, correct? Potentially, yes. I mean, I think the the premise is solid, but it needs to be followed up by something else which is not just simply hiring at the bottom, but promoting from the bottom and moving those people into positions of responsibility over time, basically giving them leadership roles. So like I said before, you know, in, in the big law firm model, you can go hire 20 first year lawyers fresh out of law school. And you know, maybe you hire a good number of women and a good number of underrepresented community members but if what you're doing is creating a structure in which only one of those 20 is going to survive to equity ownership at the end of the day, you know, what does that get you? You've really got to be able to open the path to advancement as well as hiring from the bottom so that those voices from the bottom eventually rise to the top and make decisions and are engaged in being influence makers within an organization. Okay. Okay. How important is mentorship to developing top talent then to, to bring those three people through so they do get to to be to be partners? You know, in in your career, from what you've seen, how important is mentorship from leadership? 
I, I think it's very important. I think it's tremendously important. Um, and that's always been part of the challenge is that, again, when I started in the early 90s and, and the mid 90s, there were very few women partners in uh, big law firm ranks. There were very few uh, Latino partners, African-American partners. Um, and so there was almost a, a prevailing sense that aspiration was outside your grasp if you're coming from one of these communities, um, in part because there were not enough mentors who mirrored your experience who could help guide you through the different nuances of how to advance. Because some of those nuances are, you know, technical aspects of some legal issue, right? Whether you're an employment lawyer or a real estate lawyer or whatever. Um, but technical tasks, at least in the legal profession alone, are not enough. You need to be able to navigate the skills of negotiation with counterparties. You need to be able to handle client relationships. You need to have a particular expertise or be the go-to person in something so that you add value. I mean, that's something that I eventually learned over time was that my value add was going to be, um, um, I was going to say exploiting. I don't particularly like that word in this context. How about um, in maximizing the potential from my, my cultural background to create a niche for myself in a legal area where few people um, had, had, you know, made their claim, um, stake their flag, if you will. So those are things that mentors teach you over time um, and guide you. I think, you know, anyone needs guidance. When we're children growing up, we need the guidance of our parents. When we're young professionals growing up, it's great to be able to have mentors to guide you through the profession and to guide you through an organization um, and understand what those organizations' values are and to um, shepherd us through the course of advancement. Um, so yeah, uh, mentoring is incredibly important, but mentoring um, for young diverse lawyers is also hard to come by um, just because again, the, the, the balance is, um, is not there, right? We're, we're not represented at the top, so who do we have mentor us that makes us, um, that understands the experience that we're coming from? There's not a lot of opportunity there for mentoring in the legal industry. Okay, so so far we've spoken about the challenges faced by um, folks with different diverse backgrounds. We've, we've spoken about in terms of culture, race, uh, uh, gender. Here's another one for you that you mentioned earlier in the context of the pandemic, and that's people who work remotely. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm just fascinated to, to know, you know, within the, the legal profession, is, is there, are, are there any biases towards folks who prefer to be working remotely compared to uh, folks who are, who are, for want of a better word, prepared to come into the office and have lots of face time? Does, it, does that create any biases that you've seen? So I'm so glad you asked, Bill. And the reason I say that with such, you know, emphasis is that um, our law firm, Ramon, was established in, what, 2007, 2008? And it was established on a platform that was meant to leverage technology. In other words, we were meant to be remote by design. We were remote well before the pandemic. And we grew to be over 100 lawyers um, with a remote experience. So when the pandemic hit, it did not require us to miss a beat whatsoever. Yet 
growing up in, in, in big law, FaceTime was incredibly important. I'll, I'll go back to the commentary that I was making before with respect to um, um, the associate experience and, and what we call the leverage pyramid, right? If the economic model of big law is to hire a whole bunch of uh, uh, younger lawyers as associates and to make them work horrific hours as an associate, one of the things that you had to do to ensure advancement was to make sure that you were in the office all the time and that you were seen. I remember there were experiences that what you felt you had to do was be in the conference room at eight o'clock at night when the delivery food order arrived so that everyone could see that you were still working at eight o'clock at night, having dinner in the office and working till 9.30 so that then you could go home and be back by 7.30. I mean, the notion was you had to be in the office all the time. This was your life. And so when the pandemic arrives, can you imagine the dislocation to that sort of set of cultural values? How would an attorney um, who is now working from home prove that they were working, you know, those, those horrific 12 billable hours a day? And, um, you know, it became a challenge for those attorneys to um, establish the case that they're still economically relevant to their law firm organization. Um, and so for what it's worth, now what you're seeing a lot in the law firm world is trying to get lawyers back to the office because part of that model requires that very expensive real estate, that very expensive office lease for 50 lawyers in you know, downtown Los Angeles or Menlo Park or Seattle or Chicago or wherever. And when those offices went empty and lawyers started working from home, um, you ended up finding ways to be productive from home. And what you're seeing now is law firms stressed by those very expensive leases, trying to get lawyers to go back to the office who don't want to go. You know, our model is, well, don't go because you work just as well from home anyway. I mean, I'm still talking to you from home today. Um, so, you know, the pandemic played out interestingly for the legal industry as well as other industries, but in our law firm, it didn't affect us. It actually created a type of competitive advantage for us because lawyers who realized, hey, you could actually be productive from home and who were dissatisfied with the pressures and stresses of big law um, came to us and saying, hey, how did you guys do this over the course of the last 10 years prior to the pandemic? Can I join you? And we actually had um, incredible growth. We had 20% um, growth in 2020, 2021 and 2022 during the pandemic. I mean, we grew by leaps and bounds. So um, yeah, it's been um, a very interesting ride to see what's happened um, in the legal industry as a result of the pandemic. Okay, thank you very much. We are almost at the end of this particular conversation already before we wrap up. How can folks connect with you and how can they learn more about Ramon Law? Well, about Ramon Law, it's it's really basic. You can go to uh, RamonLaw.com. Of course, you could go to various social media, particularly on LinkedIn. You can find my biography there as the managing partner. Um, for people who are lawyers and disaffected by um, the big law experience, Within our website, there is a white paper that was written by one of our founders. It's called Disrupt. And um, although I think it's a bit pretentious when one 
refers to themselves as a, as a disruptor. I don't think disruption in an industry happens intentionally uh, so much as it happens by a variety of different factors, many of them out of our control. But the notion there was uh, in writing that white paper to show how the history and the development of the economic model for big law has created a number of these circumstances that I was referring to previously, which result in many, many dissatisfied lawyers and particularly dissatisfied and alien lawyer, alienated lawyers of color, female lawyers, underrepresented lawyers, LGBTQ lawyers who just do not feel that they belong in uh, their law firms. And so by trying to create a different model what we're trying to do at Ramon is to create a welcoming place for those lawyers who feel disaffected and alienated um, and who want to find a refreshing and liberating way to practice. Um, so you can see that on the RamonLaw.website. Probably just go look for Disrupt and you'll find that white paper. Um, and if anyone wants to look me up on LinkedIn, Bill, I'm, I'm happy to have a discussion all day and all night. Diversity uh, is one of my passions personally and professionally. I think I've used it as a way to um, add value to my clients and to my career. Um, and um, I'm glad that you have a site dedicated to it. This is wonderful. Well, this conversation has been wonderful and it just leaves me to say for today, thank you very much for being my guest. It's been my pleasure, Bill. Thank you for having me. And um, I look forward to uh, any number of conversations in the future. And listeners, there will, of course, as always, be links in the show notes. And that just leads me to say for today, as always, until next time, happy working. Thanks for listening to the HR Chat Show. If you enjoyed this episode, why not subscribe and listen to some of the hundreds of episodes published by HR Gazette. And remember, for what's new in the world of work, subscribe to the show, follow us on social media, and visit hrgazette.com.